Thank y'all for joining once again. This is the G Podcast, where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and everything else. Today, we got our first repeat guest, Rob Boyd, and today we are going to talk about this idea of interest rates. You already know what it is. We getting right to it. This is the G Podcast. Yes, indeed. Y'all know what it is. This is the G podcast where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom and our future and everything else. This is the G pie and we got Rob back on once again. Good brother. Appreciate you for joining. I'm back. Thank you for having me back. I'm I'm interested. No pun intended. In the conversation today, uh, I'm sure a lot of people will get some value from what we talk about today. So I'm, I'm ready to jump right into it. Yes, indeed. And for those of you watching, if you're curious to learn more about Rob, his background, we got an episode out right now called The Best Re-Educator, Re as in R-E-I-T. So make sure you check that out on the YouTube if you want to learn a little bit more about Rob. Today, we're going to really talk about this idea of interest rates, especially here in the United States. You hear this term so often in today's world, post-COVID, a lot of monetary policy going on, but the average person might not have an understanding of some of these fundamentals. So let's really start from the beginning here when it comes to interest rates, because these interest rates are controlled by an entity called the Federal Reserve. And when I was in school, my professor told me the Federal Reserve is as federal as FedEx. And so, <laughs> Rob, I'm curious to hear your just opinion on like, for, for those listening, how would you explain what the Federal Reserve is? And, and, and how that relates in the United States. For sure. Well, first of all, I've never heard that, but that's really good. Um, <laughs> the Federal Reserve is the bank of all banks. So when you think about the Bank of America, Truist, PNC, Chase, all of the what, what are labeled as retail banks, be, meaning that banks that we go to as consumers to use their accounts, and in some cases use their loans, all of those banks have to put their money or get their money from another bank, which is called this Federal Reserve. And even though it's called the Federal Reserve, as you noted, it is not a completely government-ran entity. It is actually a privately founded entity that is what they call quasi-government. It's kind of half government, half not government. It's just the entity that controls something called monetary policy. That's a fancy way of saying something that creates the rules for money. And the Federal Reserve acts in a way where they're always operating to achieve a certain objective. And those objectives are typically keeping unemployment low, making sure that the country's financial world or financial state is solid. And in doing so, they control interest rates and a lot of other things that allow people to borrow money in order to buy things that they might not have the cash to borrow we think about mortgages, car loans, credit, all these different things. Federal Reserve funds banks in a way that fund that banks have additional assets to be able to lend to you as an everyday person. So it is somewhat of a trickle down. Like I know we hear that term a lot in other areas of the financial world. Money is decided 
at the top, which is the Federal Reserve. Then they allow the Bank of America's, the PNC's, the truest to borrow money from them. And then we follow up and buy borrow money from those banks that we are more familiar with. And along the way of that financial food chain, each step, somebody's making money from the next person who borrows from them. Uh, but that's generally the role of the Federal Reserve. That's what they do. They decide the rules for money in this country. Uh, but because we're one of the most powerful countries, if not the most powerful country in the world, their decisions also affect things on a global level, even though their authority is strictly here in America. Mm, powerful. And oh, not to get too much into a wormhole, because the thing about the thing about this topic in general, you can go down a wormhole of conspiracy theories and but there are also some facts just about for sure. the entity and how it was created. And just for, for those listening and, and Rob, I'm curious to hear your 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 opinion on this as well. My understanding of even how the Federal Reserve came to be uh, was mm -hmm. because of a crisis in the, in the early part of the, the 1900s that powers that be a lot of bankers came together to to incentivize the country to enact the Federal Reserve. It was a Federal Reserve Act. I believe it was 1913. I forget if it was the exact year, but like, can you talk a little bit or do you know much about like how that came to be from the start back in the day? Well, basically what happened was there was, let's just call it a, a financial crisis that there needed to be a referee put into place that refereed the world of money. Uh, because as countries were developing and as things were happening on a global level, there were certain things that the U.S. wanted to do to continue to become somewhat of a superpower in the world. And they said, in order to do that, we have to consolidate all of these different assets and financial matters that are happening in this country. And we need a central entity that's going to consolidate how money operates in this country. There are certain things that were funded, whether it's the real world system and, and different things that actually created the, the sense of commerce in this country, whether it's moving goods, trading goods, all these different things. And they realize, hey, we need a central system that is going to regulate and determine how money moves in this country, but also very important aspect of how this country actually taxes its citizens um, and who owes that money back to all of these different entities that are financing different things in the country that are actually leading to the revolution of industry in this country. So long story short, what happened was that they realized that the government did not have the funds to back or to secure a lot of the different loans and finances that, that existed in America. A lot of wealthy individuals, I would say not formally, but recognized as a group called the robber barons, which is not a, an official term, but it's basically how they labeled this group of super wealthy individuals, which included the Vanderbilts, mm -hmm. the Rockefellers, the, the JP Morgans, all of these super wealthy individuals that controlled and in some way were titans in their industry. They said, hey, you guys are so wealthy that we're going to need your help and we're going to need for you to fund or finance elements of the government so that this all doesn't fall apart because we're literally recognizing that we're on the verge of World War One. And in that time, there were so many uncertainties and this conflict that was bubbling across the world made America look at, at the scenario around mortgages and a couple other things that were very prevalent assets at that point in time. Say, how can we 
quote unquote, secure these assets, meaning that if there was ever a scenario where the these debts had to be paid out, that there's some entity that has the ability to buy this debt, which we'll talk about what that means to buy debt. But basically, this was kind of the story that all of these super wealthy people came together, financed the government, and the Federal Reserve was this, was this privately owned entity, which all of these families put their money together, created the Federal Reserve, and, and financed or funded a lot of the government's operations. And then, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but I got to throw this part of the story in, mm-hmm. that in order to pay these families back for the money that they pulled together to finance and back up the government. In order to pay them back, they created this thing called the Internal Revenue Service, what we know today as the IRS, that's collecting taxes from all of the Americans, all the citizens, to pay back what was originally funded in relation to these families funding the government and the government had to basically take this big IOU and, and the government has this big IOU with these families which are represented in the in the form of the Federal Reserve and every year and why the IRS even exists is to collect money to pay back the Federal Reserve which is financing America. Mm-hmm. It's not work. Who finances the Federal Reserve, right? And, and then you find out it's a bunch of it, it's a it's a private it's a private group. Mm-hmm. I fast forward to current day, mm-hmm. and I think about how wealthy the wealthiest of rich are, or the riches of rich, the the Elon mm-hmm. Musk, the Bezos. Like if they wanted to come together and finance a country. Like they have the 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 resources and the capital to really do that. And very crazy how all of this is really built around capital, not just the ability to get it, but the ability to supply it for a nation. You you also mentioned a couple of key points in that, and this is to my understanding, and we're talking high level. The Federal Reserve they essentially want to control inflation, and they want to control, or should I say, price stability, and they want to control unemployment and they do that using these interest rates, right? When we talk about this interest rate, like how would you just in in layman's terms define what that interest rate means or what it is? No, that's a good question. So here's how it works. Or here's recent history that we all can relate to that we probably lived through and saw but just might not have understood what was happening. So we have this financial debacle disaster which we a lot of us know as 2008 2009, this huge recession uh, that happened probably when some of us were in college or right after we got out of college, when we talk about those in in that millennial age range. And what happened in that time period is that there were some bad decisions made on from the bank's perspective, as far as who banks decided to make loans to. They basically made loans that people were not going to be able to pay back based on their income. But they made those loans in with with the attitude of, I hope they are able to pay this back instead of, I know they'll be able to pay this back. So when that happened and the Great Recession happened, the stock market plummeted and companies were laying people off. A lot of things just slowed down economically. When that happened, one of the very first things that President Obama did when he got into office, which he was elected in 2008, 
in November of 2008, but he wasn't. Uh, it wasn't an inauguration until January of 2009. First, one of the first things he did when he got in office, he brought all of the interest rates and mandated that the interest rate that the Federal Reserve or asked that the Federal Reserve take their interest rate to zero. So what does that mean? That basically means for it was a, about a eight year, six, six or seven year window in particular where the Federal Reserve was not charging any interest to all of those banks to that are borrowing money from the Federal Reserve. So there are a lot of jokes recently where with the current chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jerome Powell, they a lot of jokes that circulate on social media calling him the money printer. Like he just prints money. He just <clears throat> he lets the rent printer roll and he's just creating money out of thin air. Well, that is the scenario whenever the interest rates are zero, which they were from 2008 to about 2014, 15. And then Trump came into office, started to raise the interest rates, and then the pandemic happened and they brought them back to zero again. Well, basically, when the interest rates are zero, that means banks are essentially getting free money in order to operate. And there's this dynamic where the Federal Reserve is just creating money that people, that banks, Bank of America say, hey, we want to make loans and, and keep the economy and money circulating. In order to do that, we got to make loans because most of the, the money that that is circulating in America is money that came originally from some form of loan or debt. And I will explain that later. But just for the purpose of the answer, that's when, a, when the interest rates are low, that is usually incentivizing banks to allow people to borrow money because what the government and slash Federal Reserve are trying to do is get the economy rolling again. And they're able to do that when they, quote, unquote, create cheap money, money mm. that is, doesn't cost a lot to borrow, which is when the interest rates are lower. The Federal Reserve is not charging Bank of America to borrow that money. Hey, here's interest free money. Go approve credit cards, approve car loans, approve mortgages, because we need those transactions to happen to speed back up our economy because it just was just hit rock bottom when the stock market crashed and other things crashed, which Essentially, is what happened in 2008. It happened again in 2020 by way of the pandemic, so not the normal causes. And then now, with some of the aftershock of the pandemic and supply chain issues, a lot of things that knocked things out of whack economically, the same scenario formed over the last, let's just say, one or two years, where before the last, before this past 12 months, where interest rates were virtually zero. And then now they're starting to, you know, the interest rates are not starting to, they're really high in comparison to some of those periods of time, because here's the, I'll, I guess I'll call it the ill effect, the bad side to low interest rates. Because many would think, oh, well, interest rates are low. That means my mortgage rate that I borrow with is going to be low. That's good for me. And that's great. Like, because if it didn't cost any money for Bank of America or JP Morgan to borrow this from the Fed, then they're probably not going to charge me as much of an interest rate when I borrow from them, which is true. Here's the issue, though. When too much money comes into circulation because it's pretty much a free for all, inflation goes crazy and then your money becomes worth less. So let's so. All right. Inflation. A lot of terms being thrown around here that. Mm -hmm. We hear often and we think we know what they mean, right. but let's just slow the conversation down to talk about inflation because 
as you mentioned, unique circumstances. Just just as like a, a side note, right? If if you're if you're curious about what rates tend to look like historically, the highest rate ever was in the 80s. Okay, it was in 1980 at 20%, which sounds nuts today. Like, can you imagine 20% interest rates? I cannot imagine what uh, what that would do to quality of life today if interest yeah. rates were 20%. Because that is amazing. <laughs> like, that is crazy. But that was in 1980. When the, when the financial crisis happened in 2008, that was a historic low in terms of the rate going back down to zero. So that that was like, if you're looking at the scale of like historic highs, historic lows, it's typically from, mm-hmm. not typically, it's been as low as zero more recently. And in, in the past, it's been as high as like 20%. Right. And one of the reasons why the rate does adjust is because they use interest rates. They, the Federal Reserve, they use interest rates as a mechanism or some tool to control or, or I should say to have an impact on inflation, which is one of the key things that impacts price stability. So inflation due to, like you said, some things in COVID reached what was, uh, I think, a 40-year all-time high or in June uh, due to, like you said, some of the decisions that were made in response to COVID. So before we talk about some of those decisions, inflation, it was at an all-time high recently. What does that mean? inflation. So and how is it measured? On a on a basic level, the way that our financial system is constructed, there's there's a slow leak on the value of money, and that's been the 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 reality since we have left the gold standard during Nixon's term as far as when there wasn't gold at Fort Knox and other locations for every dollar that existed in our financial system. And that used to be the standard. It was a one for one. And now we're in a fractional reserve system, which is just letting people know it used to not be fractional reserve like it is today. There was a gold standard where everything out was backed by something like gold. Exactly. Inflation is uh, whenever you see that percentage, it is giving you a snapshot of what has happened to the power of the dollar or to the prices of products over the last 12 months. So whenever you see an inflation rate, it is comparing what the price of items are today to what they were exactly 12 months ago. So it's always a snapshot of how prices have changed over the last year's time, not calendar year, but over the last 12 months at any given point in time. So to your point, G, that back in June of 2022 is when inflation got to a record high, almost hit 10%. It was like nine and a half percent, which you might think, okay, that's kind of high, but is that just dire? And here, let me put this in perspective, mm-hmm. that when you think about an inflation rate being 10%, then you have to think about, well, what percentage What's the average percentage that wages increase compared to what's the percentage that the the value of a dollar is decreasing? So 9% inflation might not sound that bad because we've seen interest rates that are higher than that on credit cards and other things that we use. That it's like, okay, that's not the highest interest rate I've seen because inflation is also a form of a interest rate. Now, it's not mm. how we typically think about interest being something we have to pay on money that we borrow. 
It's a cost, though. It's a cost, though. So if everything at that point in June 2022, the average, so some things increase more, some things increase less, but the average of all of the major goods that we purchase as Americans, the price of those goods on average went up 10% in one year. We all know we didn't get a 10% raise at work. So this creates a very, very big problem where people cannot afford their lifestyle style, their livelihood, basics, the essentials. We're not talking about vacations and other stuff. We're just talking about essentials. And many Americans can't afford those things without going into further debt. And this is where the implication of interest rates can hurt you. If you if it takes you putting your groceries on a credit card and not being able to pay that balance down and carrying that balance because inflation was high, you couldn't afford it at the at the register when you first bought it. And then that happens. And then a year later, interest rates are higher than they've been in 30, 40 years. And now the interest on your credit card that you bought groceries on a year ago that you never paid off, now your interest rate is higher on this balance that you haven't had the opportunity to pay down because the price of all the goods that you need to live got more expensive. It was a, a double whammy scenario where first you got hit at the register real time with price increases. Then if you had to borrow money, personal loans, credit cards, just to make ends meet in that period of high inflation, then in order for them to lower inflation as a as a means of an economic solution, in order to lower inflation, you have to raise interest rates. Now they've raised interest rates to, to lower inflation. It is lowering, but now you have a scenario where those who possibly had to go into debt just to live life a year ago are now paying higher interest rates on the debts that they had to incur just to get by. And there's a scenario where general monetary policy hits you with a right jab, then a left hook, mm -hmm. and you're just trying to stay afloat. And and you many people don't understand that both of those things affect you negatively financially. And, and it's a scenario where if you don't have the means to not only stomach the price increases, nor the extra debt that you may be carrying because things are more expensive, you're in quicksand financially, um, which is why it's so important to understand what these two words mean and how they may affect your life. Because oftentimes we aren't taught these things in our general classes. However, Money is something that we all have to deal with every single day. So those are the general definitions for what inflation is. Is basically generally from year to year, how much the average price of goods go up. And of course, interest rate, or in this case, how we're explaining it is interest is the, the percentage that you have to pay on top of what you borrowed from any financial institution. When it comes to the all-time high, like record high over the last 40 years, we hadn't seen inflation at that number that we saw it in June of 2022. Mm -hmm. From your lens, what were some of the things that contributed to the all-time high spike of inflation over the course of that year? Like, What were some of the things that led to that? It was one thing. It was only one thing. The one thing that led to this historically high inflation rate is that the Federal Reserve did not know how to handle the pandemic situation because it caught them off guard, they were ill-prepared, and they didn't have the right measures in place to keep our economy stable 
in a scenario where business in America basically came to a screeching halt. So and let me push. Let me let me let me let me push back just a tad. When you say they didn't have the mm-hmm. now, who did have the the playbook for when the entire global supply chain shuts down? Like, is this not like unprecedented times to uh, to some degree? So, like the whole global supply chain was at a halt. Every from to, for every everything you consume as a as a mm-hmm. regular everyday person, as you, especially in them early COVID days, like we couldn't get mm-hmm. cleaning supplies, toilet paper, food, like. The grocery stores were starting to look like uh, uh, the walking dead. You were like, yo, what's going on out here? Like, yeah. is it fair to say that there is no way to plan for that? Or I'm curious, like, what, what could have been done different? It's not fair. Okay. <laughs> Here's why. On, on, on that level, there are doomsday procedures. And you have to be prepared for any and everything on paper. As far as if this happens, this is what we do. If that happens, this is what we do. There are hundreds and hundreds of pages of what we, what is called a decree. Anything happens where our economy is brought to a halt. So this doomsday scenario is actually created in terms of if there's any kind of global war or any kind of freeze to global trade and commerce due to warlike conditions like world war kind of conditions that these are the things that we need to do to keep our economy stable if we do truly find ourselves on an island economically and the pandemic actually created that scenario where we were on an island economically so what i mean by that is that when the pandemic happened it's a word that we all heard a lot more of supply chain that Certain goods that come from China, come from Asia, come from Africa, come from the Middle East, wherever they come from, was disrupted because in those places where they're producing the items and shipping the items, they are not operational. One of the biggest impacts was in China, where they had complete shutdowns and nothing was moving. So when you think about your house and you turn over products, think about how many things (laughs) in your house when you turn over, say, made in China. Those those kind of products were not getting to America because what's called a supply chain, the process of a product getting from point A to point B was disrupted, which actually created this doomsday effect, not because of a war, but because of a global pandemic. To the, the original question, on paper, the Federal Reserve should know how to operate effectively and efficiently if something like this were to happen. Because it's the same implications as if there was a global war and they're the country that we get a lot of goods from said, oh, no, we're fighting each other. We're not sending this to your country anymore. There are things in place that the Federal Reserve would do if that was the case, which is actually what was that scenario was created by way of a pandemic. I say they didn't want to send it. They just had shutdowns that didn't enable them to send certain goods to our country. So I'm saying all that to say that. Even though it was a unplanned scenario, based on how inflation went out of control means that in the moment, the Federal Reserve made missteps on how to keep our economy rolling in 2020 and early 2021 because of what the aftershock of the inflation looked like. Here's bottom line. The government printed more money than they needed to. Right. That's or the Federal Reserve. Printed more money than they did too. So oh, let's 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 like, like let's distinguish because this was like mandated, no, or like I, I, I this is where I become a little blurry here because the did the government oh. 
print it or did the Federal so, Reserve print it? Like who gets the blame here in uh, your from your lens? So let me let me clarify what I just said because I slightly misspoke. The government, and when I say the government, meaning what we're talking about, the presidential administration or Congress, that they federal government ask federal government, yeah. They ask, imply, suggest what they would like the Federal Reserve to do. But there is a very clear line that often isn't crossed and, and legally shouldn't be crossed where the government's actually mandating the Federal Reserve to do something because in actuality, the Federal Reserve is, 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 is at the will by design and by definition, the government is a borrower of the Federal Reserve. So whoever loans the money makes the rules. Mm-hmm. Now, there are certain things that they will adhere to and listen to the presidential administration's Congress as far as suggestions and just for uh, uh, checks and balances as far as the government, the federal government and the Federal Reserve. There are hearings where the Federal Reserve chairman has to report an answer to questions of Congress to make sure things are being done ethically. But in actual, when it comes down to actual monetary policy, the federal government cannot tell the Federal Reserve what to do. Right. They can just make very high-level suggestions in a way that usually, just to keep the peace and keep things copacetic, the Federal Reserve usually does go in the direction what the 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 Federal Reserve usually goes in the direction of what the government is asking for. But in this case, here's here's the bottom line of what happened. First, in that in the course of about nine months, roughly, you have seven trillion dollars, seven with a T, seven trillion dollars that was quote unquote printed. I mean, that's what many people say, but it's most of the money that's that's created is not printed. Right, right, right. It's not physically printed. Right, right. Right. It's it's a number in a computer. Well, hold on. When you say seven trillion, trillion. Do you before that, how much was in circulation? Just to give like a a a relative ballpark of what was already in circulation versus what was printed, or or what tends to get printed year over year. Even do you have anything to just compare that to? Yeah. So this this I, I would say financial event of how much money was created, let's just say in that 12-month span, it was a little bit less than that, but let's just say within a, within a year's time, was the most money ever, ever created and printed in that amount of time in the history of our country. There has never been a point in time in a 12-month span where even close to $2 trillion was put into circulation or created. So seven is a whole nother ball game. Because if you look at our economy as a whole, our, our, our country's economy as a whole, as far as the value of the businesses, money in circulation, all these things, it, it floats and it varies, but it's anywhere from 30 to $40 trillion, which is uh, just the, the scope of everything and everything's value in our country. When you go to global economy, it's much larger because you think about all the other countries and their money and right. their wealth and their natural resources. So when you have a system where let's just say at that point, it was kind of a low point because of the pandemic. You got $30 trillion as our whole pie. And then you say out of nowhere, 
We're going to add 7 trillion. We're just going to type it up in the computer. And now 37 trillion exists instead of 30. <laughs> that it makes the value of money lesser because just because you print it more, every, every dollar has to have something that determines its value. Used to be gold, but now it's the market itself. So here's what where companies benefited, which is kind of what contributed to inflation. So it's not all the Federal Reserve's fault. But here's how for-profit world took advantage of what the Federal Reserve of oh, the free they money. Saw. They was like, they saw that a free money. money. Yeah, yeah. All that free money get printed up and stimulus checks sent out. They're like, oh, people got it. We can raise our prices. We know they have discretionary income because we know every person in this country at first got a $600 check. Then they followed it up. And a lot of people got a $1,200 check at bare minimum. Even though it doesn't sound like a lot, we have to remember there's 300 million people in this country. Yeah. Like that, when you 300 million times $1,800? Yeah, you talk about out of those 300, who's checked the check? And like when you talk about that amount of money, that especially in some pockets of the state, that might be more than what you pay in your in your in your in your rent and utilities. That that's like a whole extra month's pay Easily. potentially. And and here's the nature of the consumer in America, which which is mm. honestly most of us, is that if we have it, we are going to spend it because we're not educated to know how to invest it. So instead of me saying, Oh, I got an extra thousand dollars, let me learn how to invest this even though that is the the thought of many more people in today's world than probably 10 years ago. Right. That is not the majority that are thinking, oh, I got an extra thousand. Let me figure out how to invest it. Most Americans, oh, I got an extra thousand. Oh, I need this. I need to go buy this. I've always needed this. I always wanted that. And they're going to spend it, which is literally the reason why they call a stimulus check. It is to stimulate the economy. They're not giving it to you to put it in your savings account. Right. They're giving it to you because it's like, hey, we give this to them, we're going to get it back. We just right. got to give it to them to spend so it keeps our economy moving. When that happened, though, and they they not only, obviously, the PPP program, the company bailouts, and obviously the personal checks that we all got as far as our stimulus, they overdid it. And no, and then when, you, when people are getting this money, nobody's thinking, oh, man, a year or two from now, we're going to have to worry about it. Nobody's thinking that. Right. Nobody's thinking about. Well, no. Some people were. Some people. Some. It. It. It was. But that was like a very like high level econ focus. It, right. it was. It was very much a niche conversation. But a lot of economists yeah. were like, "This is silly, silly, silly." And, oh, right. I was. And, I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be bad." Mm. And I. And and I knew that. And I said that. But at the same time. You have to read the room. Yeah. And there, there's individuals that are afraid with the actual pandemic dynamic and uncertain of what the heck is going on with that. You got variants popping every week. There's a lot of uncertainty in that space with just life itself. And people are afraid of what's to come with that. Then you have a scenario where people have needs, have expenses, have things that, hey, I don't know what's going on. The, the psyche of how I look at life, being that I'm seeing in the news, so many people are dying, so many people are being affected by this. A lot of people took on a yolo 
full of attitude. And when and now they got this extra money that they didn't necessarily have to work for, that you treat it in a way where somebody gave it to me, I feel more free to spend it. House money. So companies, companies saw that and said, oh, we can raise our prices and benefit from the fact that people have so much more discretionary money to spend. And we can turn this situation into profit because we are a for-profit business. And that is our number one objective is to find ways to grow as a business, especially when we made it had a couple months where we weren't making any money because nobody was leaving their house. Companies capitalizing on all of this money being put into circulation is also one of the contributing factors to why inflation ran loose for so long, for like two years, before they started to reel back in by raising in, in interest rates. So let me ask this. Now, granted, they say everything in hindsight is 2020. And when you talk mm -hmm. about monetary policy, especially, you can you can assess how good the decision making was by outcomes now that we've lived through the outcomes. So it's fair Correct. to say there were some missteps. What types of steps just say if you're if you're looking at that in retrospect and it comes up again what would you do differently in your opinion it, that wasn't done this time say if we, we run into another crazy crisis like that instead of handling the way they handle it handled it what do you think will be a better would a, would be, would lead to better results in terms of long-term inflation yet trying to keep the economy stimulated so if i were to go back if i was if I was chair of the Federal Reserve at the point in time, now, I would have made it so that the stimulus that was you know, provided to different companies, small business owners, and and you know everyday individuals, working professionals, would have based the the stimulus amount on what your federal tax rate was on your last return. They can do that. Now, this might sound really technical. It's like, oh, Robert, do they have enough time to think about that? Didn't they do that, though? Didn't they say if you made X amount, then you would not get this? They did, but here's where they messed up. They Where they messed up is that when you think about the corporate bailouts, that those were, were based off of revenue rather than need. So... Let me put it like this. The biggest companies could go circumvent their bank. This is the first time in history this ever happened. The corporations did not have to go to a bank for funding. And the Federal Reserve bought corporate bonds directly. This has never happened in the history of finance in this country. So let me explain what that means. So what that means is that without an intermediary, without a middle person, without... Bank of America or J.P. Morgan, who a company would naturally go to for their banking needs and financing needs, which is how the system was built, that because the Federal Reserve panicked and just kind of overshot what they needed to do, they said, what we'll do. We'll go directly to companies and we will buy bonds that these companies have issued because the, the Federal Reserve can't legally invest in those companies, but they can buy a bond. And all a bond is, for those who might not be familiar, have heard the term, but what is a bond? It's basically an IOU to say, okay, we're going to buy these bonds, which is basically the way that the Federal Reserve is going to give you money without just giving you money. It has to be attached to some kind of financial instrument, which they use a bond 
bond. But here's the wild part. On these bonds that they were issuing to individual corporations, they didn't put an interest rate on it. It was free money. Ultimately, these companies used those bonds for operating to make sure they didn't have have to lay off worker because that's really why the Federal Reserve did it because they wanted to give these companies money so they didn't feel the pressure to lay off all of these employees because one of the purposes of the reserve is to keep unemployment low. So, what, what was that? The audio cut out. I couldn't hear your question. I can. I. I can't hear you. I can. I see you moving, but I can't hear you. You can't hear me now. I can. Gotta get my equipment right. All right. So <laughs> you can also say that these companies use that money to overhire during that time period. Uh, of COVID during the great resignation where people were changing jobs more than ever mm -hmm. over, mm -hmm. I won't say overpaying, but when, if, if you were in that realm of, of employment, that there were opportunities where you heard people like go from one company to the next and like yep. more than double their pay uh, in some circumstances. And it's just like, wow, like all this money was out here, but like you're saying, they were getting it for free. So just to, to connect the dots here, you're saying that these 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 bonds, the Federal Reserve purchased directly from the companies themselves these bonds, which are these IOUs. So if so, I go to, straight to Nike and say I'm going to purchase this bond for a thousand, and I hold this, knowing that Nike will eventually pay me back, but the interest on on this is zero. So I'm giving Nike a thousand dollars, basically like how we give them for income taxes. <laughs> I'm giving, exactly I'm giving, the same thing. I'm giving Nike a thousand dollars, and they're gonna give it back to me when, when, the, when it matures. But I don't know how long, how long the, 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 the date was for, for the bond to mature. But even when it does, due to time value of money, due to the Federal Reserve is actually losing money on those, on those bonds transactions. Is, is, am, I, am I reading this the right way? Just making sure we follow it. No, you are reading that the right way because of that decision that gives them more pressure to raise interest rates because they got to make that back for that, that time they lost on that money because in the financial world, time is money. I, I don't really agree with using that in all essence of our lives, but in the financial space, time is definitely attached to money because time is the thing that helps you make money on money. Mm -hmm. Interest Interest is a time controlled concept there's 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 an annual interest rate mm. so time is a factor in interest so in the in the financial world exclusively time does if the value of money either inflation with the price going up over time or with the cost of borrowing which is in the form of an interest rate that time is one of those things it's a constant that always allows money to be made on money which is that, when that, we start to talk about being an investor. That term time value of money is is a real term in the finance world. Like the, the time sure. value of money, you're always looking at that over time because like you said, due to inflation, due to other factors, what you have today, if it's just in cash, the inflation will, will cost you and, and you would have lost value on that same amount of cash just due to the inflation itself. You're 
Cool. Your your hundred dollars in June twenty twenty one was now worth ninety dollars in June twenty twenty two, and that's like the reality of inflation. Yep, and and that that would I think there's a lot of things hindsight wise that you realized the Federal Reserve panicked and kind of leaned on the button a little bit too much in relation to the money printing button. And I say that loosely because it's not necessarily that they printed these dollars, but they gave a lot of people interest-free money, mm-hmm. which led led to the current high interest rate environment because now they increase interest rate to make that money back and to slow down money getting into circulation, which was going to ultimately bring inflation back down to where it's supposed to be, which is 2%, but it got up to 95 last summer, which... So, so they get you an idea context wise. We were way above where we we're supposed to be based on their monetary policy, based on decisions that they made that they thought they had to make to keep America going when it virtually did come to a halt because of the pandemic. When the Federal Reserve, when they come together and they have these meetings, uh, more specifically, let's just give them, give them the, the, let me find the right name of these people. The Federal, what's the acronym I'm looking for? The Federal oh, Open Market the Committee. The OMC? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Federal mm-hmm. Open Market Committee. They're actually scheduled to meet on the 25th and 26th. This is being recorded on the 24th. I usually don't like the uh, timestamp, the, the recordings, but I think this is important because this is a moment in time for, for sure. This is a unique period of, of time in the country's history. They're going to meet again uh, this week. And I think people are anticipating another adjustment to the rate. Now, before we get there, though, when the Fed adjusts the interest rate, it's often referred to as they moved it X amount of basis points. Right. Can we just talk about what that means? Basis (laughs) points, because they love to use terminology that don't nobody understand to murky up the waters so that it's like, what? Uh -uh." Right. Right. So when the so when we have so when when the Fed meets this week, Mm -hmm. we anticipate that they're going to announce an increase in X amount of basis points. What are basis points? So here's how I was taught what base how to keep basis points in mind, and I think is one of the easiest ways to remember it. Basis points are always to the right of the decimal. And when you look at the interest rate, so if it's, if let's just say there's an interest rate of 4%, like four flat. And if the interest rate were to go to 4.50, if in the financial world, interest are always looked at with numbers after the decimal. If it went up to 4.5, five zero percent that means that the interest rate went up 50 basis points so oh i like that okay i just gotta plug it while you're talking i just gotta plug it while while you're talking just keep going you got my attention though so so when you think when you hear the word basis points think about the number to the right of a decimal when you're looking at a, a percentage so four point whatever five point whatever those numbers that are after the decimal after the point those are basis points so so in the case of right now let's just say the the current interest rate is 4.75 percent if they were to raise interest rates to five flat so from 0.475 to five would be 25 basis points of an increase. So it's those numbers to the right of the decimal in a percentage that tell you what the basis points are. And the reason they talk in basis points is there, there's a, 
there's this unofficial kind of uh, rumor, I would say, in the economic world, in the economic space, where when they are acknowledging basis points, it gives them an ability to compare apples to apples. Because in scenarios where you go from a, a 4% interest rate to a 5% interest rate, then somebody may say, oh, that's a 25% increase on the interest rate. It went from 4 to 5 which is an additional one whole percentage point. Mm-hmm. And some people will say, oh, that was a 25% increase. Well, it's like, no, it only went from four to five. And so to keep things from being confusing, they always categorize increases and decreases in interest rates and basis points instead of saying it was a certain percentage increase because it would confuse you to say, oh, how did this percentage just increase by a percentage? So they use basis points to try to make it seem clearer, but it's actually very confusing because it's nobody more ever confusing. Defined, nobody ever defines what a basis point is. Right. So, it's so more yeah, that's, confusing. that's why they even use it. That's why they even use it because they thought, oh, it would be it, it would be confusing if we said that a four percent interest rate in, increased by half a percent. Well, is that is that half a percent of four <laughs> or half a percent in general? And it went from four to 4.5. So because they thought that would be confusing, they said, hey, let's just always categorize the change in any rates in the in the verbiage of basis points. So they, they got just too smart for themselves, basically. I appreciate that explanation because you hear it all the time, X amount of basis points, X amount of basis points. And as you mentioned, the the first time the rate went to zero was the financial crisis of 2008. That was the first time that was the night that 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 was actually implemented, mm-hmm. and it stayed that at zero for years, which is kind of crazy in retrospect because mm-hmm. we didn't really see the rates of inflation either, like from then too. So I, I guess I don't know. Like now, as I'm as I'm sort of talking through this, it leads to other questions. But it's just like, how is it that that rate stayed at zero? for so many years, and yet we didn't have, say, the the record levels of inflation that we've seen with what we've, what we've done here in response to COVID? I would have to say that's probably the most insightful question I've gotten about this in a minute, and here's why. In that stage of 2008, here, the, the financial system itself, and there's this unwritten kind of rule where every decade we're going to see a recession. And the reason is because that's how our financial system is created, that there can't be an extended multiple decade run of price increases before affordability goes out the window and no money is being circulated, excuse me, or changing hands because nobody can afford anything. It's cyclical. That's what we call cyclical, right? Like just for the listeners, you hear that term cyclical, it it goes in cycles. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes round and round. What he is describing is the cyclical nature of of, of the market. So just want to make sure I interject that. No, great point. So about every eight to 10 years, naturally, we're going to have a recession. So when that happened, in 2008, it had gotten to a point, let's just talk about 2006 and 2007 before everything fell apart, that there was an environment where there were 
exorbitant gains in the investment world, whether you're talking about real estate, whether you're talking about the stock market, that the price of assets, so we're talking about homes, buildings, stocks, companies, the price of assets had gone on this tremendous run following the dot-com bust of 2000, 2001. So we're talking about a, about a six or seven year run of the economy growing and progressing. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is that money is circulating and the value of assets is growing. And then it got to a point, and here's what led to, to the 2008 debacle. It got to a point where homes were not affordable to most Americans, but because things were going so well, Banks said, hey, just loan them the money, even though they might be subprime as far as the quality of their credit, they might be below a 640. They might be below a 680, which is when you get into the neighborhood of what is a prime interest rate that tells a bank that this borrower has the ability and shows the behavior that they will pay this money back. At that point, things were going so well, but at, because things were going so well, the price of homes were also increasing and banks were giving loans out for the amount for, for mortgages that people did not have the income to support over the long term. So what did they do? And this is where the banking industry got a black eye. They, they started to take advantage of what are called arm mortgages, adjustable rate mortgages. Right. That allow someone to borrow more than they could afford to borrow, but their mortgage had this promotional introductory rate that gave them a payment they could afford that a year or two down the line it was going to adjust based on the interest rates at that that were prevalent at that point. When that happened, all of these mortgages couldn't be paid. People didn't have the income to pay the mortgages. All these foreclosures happened. The housing market crashed, which led to this recession. So then, with that being the backstory, to get back to the question, that because that actually happened in the nature of the cyclical uh, reality of our financial world, that there were other monetary policy elements in play that limited the ability for inflation to go too crazy in a zero interest rate environment. And there was a scenario where that Great Recession was such a debacle that the recovery process happened directly in the financial world because a lot of those banks went under, investment banks went under, other large retail banks had to merge. There was a lot right. of consolidation that happened that inflation didn't really have an ability to get out of control because other things were in place. Because that recession, if I had to, I don't mean to slight anybody's experience back then, but that recession was something that the Federal Reserve was prepared for and they saw coming. They did not know the pandemic was going to bring things to a halt. So there was other percentages, other policies, other things in, that were in play that caught the Federal Reserve red-handed in 2020. But in 2008, they weren't necessarily caught red-handed because they knew the reset was going to need to have on the economy anyway. <clears throat> it just so happened that the housing market happened to be the trigger. But the housing market in that scenario is still a, is a predictable monster. The pandemic was an unpredictable monster. So they broke a lot of glass, as they say, when the fire alarm goes off, you got to break the glass to get the extinguisher. They broke a <clears throat> the glass in 2020 that they didn't necessarily break in 2008 
because one of the things that is always going to happen in this country is that the the government is going to pressure and push the Federal Reserve to bail out the financial institutions. But the Federal Reserve also thinks that that's a good thing to do because those are the very companies that they make money from. That's what they're into. They're going to keep that structure afloat. But when you got a scenario where it's not just banks, that the Federal Reserve was printing money for everybody, the bill ran up in 2020 way more than ran up in 2008. But when you're you're saving airlines and retail companies mm-hmm. and communications companies mm-hmm. and banks and and everybody needed that in 2020 back in 2008 it was just the it banks was the financial yeah yeah it was just the financial yeah. world so because it was one industry back then they had some workarounds where inflation didn't go crazy but in 2020 it was every industry they didn't really know how to measure that and they said hey let's do more than enough and we know we're going to have to deal with inflation on the back end but they decided to go more than enough than being than trying to be strategic because it would have took took longer to be strategic and at that point the americans wanted them to take action and and that's the reality you no know, that's that that is crazy like the way that you explain that and that, and that makes total sense it makes total sense why the, the impact was different I guess my question is, as it relates to interest rates, obviously the housing market, what it costs to say, <clears throat> so I purchased a home in 2017 and again in 2021. Two different homes or you refinanced? Actually, I purchased a home. I refinanced in 2020 when his rates were starting to dip to, to upgrade the joint. And then my, my wife, being a realtor, saw a great opportunity. So we ended up, okay. just because of the market, really was like, why not get this home? Like, so we ended up purchasing another home in 2021. Now, mm-hmm. the interest rate, I think when we first purchased our home in 2017, the interest rate that we had, given it was our first time and such and such, blah, blah, blah. I was the only person on the, it was just all on me. And I hadn't even, all I had was an offer letter. (laughs) I was like, they gave me an interest rate around 5%. That was 2017. 2021, we got an interest rate locked in at a fixed rate. Like three some, right? Somewhere in the threes. Yeah. Yeah, Somewhere uh in the threes. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in the threes. Now, I did a little research, but they said at the current rate right now today, which is not what it was then. Like if, if, if we bought the same house today with the current mm-hmm. interest rate versus what it was then, we'd be paying hundreds more a month uh, in, 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 in the debt. But mm-hmm. what I read was that the current 30-year fixed rate, you'll pay about 678 each month for every 100K that you borrow. That's That was at the current 30-year fixed rate. You're going to pay about 678, right. so about 700 bucks for every mm-hmm. 100k that you borrow. Yep. Yep. So the, the the housing market definitely is impacted by interest rate. My question is like what are the key markets that tend to see the biggest impacts when the Federal Reserve makes those adjustments with the basis points to the interest rate? It is definitely the housing market is is probably one of the biggest uh impacts on that industry. I would also say uh, what is called the unsecured lending. So when someone says you have an unsecured loan versus a secured loan, it's simply the difference between does the loan have any form of collateral or is it something that is not quote unquote collateralized? Like 
if you don't pay this, they, there's not something that they're going to take from you. So with a home, you don't pay your mortgage, they take the home back. The car, you don't pay your, your car note, they repo it. Those are secured loans, meaning that there's some asset that they can take back if you don't pay the debt. But on the unsecured side, like a credit card, if you don't pay the credit card, it's not something they're going to come take from you. It's going to impact your credit score, but there's right. not an asset they're going to come take from you because you didn't pay your credit card debt. So, it's not rent-a-center. Right. So, <laughs> so with... with <laughs> With <laughs> like, man, they will come take your couch. Trust me. Um, so, so in that scenario, unsecured loans also are impacted a lot by raising of interest rates because those rates can be raised faster because they can go in the system tomorrow and say instead of eighteen percent being our APR on our credit cards this morning, you woke up. Now anybody who gets a new credit card or an existing credit card, the, your, your interest rate is now 20. Like I can change mm. those rates overnight and there's not necessarily a ripple effect that would affect the mortgage or home buying industry if interest rates went up 2% overnight. In that industry, you'll see more incremental increases rather than a jolt. But here's what it all comes down to. And this is, I think, what everybody needs to understand about our country and our financial system is that by far, it's not even close. Banks make the most money on mortgages. Mm. That is their number one product. That is the number one thing that they sell to consumers. That's, mm. let, me, let me make sure this is clear. A mortgage is a product that is sold to you that is then secured by your home being the asset. But a mortgage is something that they give to you because they underwrite your income. They're when they when they when you go to get a mortgage, they are not underwriting the home. They're not they don't care what the home is worth now, what it'll be worth later. They do for from a standpoint of making sure they're they're on point with with the debt to to the loan, I mean, excuse me, debt to value ratio. Right, appraisal and whatnot. I, However, what takes so long in the mortgage approval process is they're analyzing, is this person going to be able to consistently pay this mortgage to us on a month-to-month -month basis? And they're analyzing your forms of income. They're analyzing how much debt you have. That's why they uh, gun-ho about your debt-to-income ratio and why that's a determinant, determinant in a mortgage more so than the ability for the value of this home to increase in the future. When you think about a mortgage, number one, it is the most profitable product a bank sells to consumers. The credit cards is quick, easy money, but people can, can you know, charge up a credit card and never pay it. And so there's a lot of losses on credit cards. Right. With a bank, there's not as many losses on mortgages because it's a secured loan. It's a, it's a better way to lend out money. So, with that said, that I think one of the things we all have to understand is how interest rates could impact quite possibly the largest purchase you may make in your lifetime, which is a home. Right. So with that said, high interest rates usually create environments where home prices are lower and low interest rates usually create an environment where home prices are higher. So when you think about how do you navigate this? How do you make a decision? I see interest rates are high right now. Should I wait and buy a home later when interest rates come down? 
But when they come down, the home prices are going to go up. It's kind of a it's a seesaw. So the way to navigate it right now, the current environment is called a buyer's market. So what that means is that as a home buyer, if you have the ability to get approved and to buy a home and you are underwritten on that mortgage and you can afford that payment, it is the best time to buy a home when it comes to home prices. Now, the 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 lick in this, if you will, is if you are in a position where you can afford to buy the home now, right, and then you will then refinance later. Inevi- inevitably, because it's all cyclical. Like we said, it's all cyclical. It's going to come back around. But can you with can you withstand the 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 the, the 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 turmoil in between? Can you because the, the tide is going to come and go? But like, can you keep exactly. that straight path along the way? Because when it does sort of fade back if you can withstand you have that ability to refinance like you were saying but just wanted to re reiterate this the cyclical nature of how this stuff works exactly so to be honest it's not that much of a difference when interest rates are low and home prices are high it's not that much of a difference in your actual mortgage payment for right. when home prices are low and interest rates are high their mortgage payment kind of looks identical but it's the reason it's called a buyer's market is because if you buy in this market, you have more of an opportunity for a financial payday later when you refinance because you bought at a lower price. Let me interject, too, because being in such a hot market like the triangle, this is when it comes to real estate, way more demand than it is supply, even with the higher interest rates. And what? what you're saying is a thousand percent true. In addition, when interest rates are lower and you wait for that moment, again, the amount of money it would cost to stay in the same property at the same price point when when the interest rate is 3% versus 5% is, is hundreds of dollars. And when you're in the market as a buyer, there are marginal buyers who... In a high interest rate market, they're not in the market for, say, $300,000 home. But in a lower interest rate market, they have the ability to compete in that price range that they didn't have before. So not only is it a buyer's market when interest rates are higher for the point that you mentioned, but also from a competitiveness standpoint in trying to secure the property. When those interest rates were low in the triangle, it was such a quote unquote seller's market. And that once you put it on the market, you were going to get 30,000 plus over asking, like just because everybody was trying to buy. And so, you know, I got to reiterate here, if if you are listening and you're trying to wait, don't wait, don't wait, secure the asset. If within your means, of course, don't over, don't overdo it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't go outside of your means and your budget. But if you if if they're approving it and it makes sense with your month to month and everything you're balancing, go get the property because it will go up in value and you will eventually have an opportunity to refinance at a lower rate and and potentially extract even more value out of your investment. So I got to double down on what you're saying there because there's a lot of people listening who are thinking what you just said. Should I wait? Wait for this to go down. They're just making excuses. And respectfully, I know what it's like to make those excuses. And I also know what to say, okay, let me go ahead and do this. And because I've said, let me go ahead and do this a couple of times, I'm just going to keep fuzzing 
it. Let me go ahead and do this <laughs> <laughs> moving forward versus waiting. That's all I can tell you from my experience. Like, don't wait if you have the opportunity to capitalize. For sure, for sure. Because on the back end, you think about, so I, in my opinion, and so nobody feel any, any kind of craziness towards this. Your home can definitely be a very viable asset in your financial picture, but it doesn't really become a tool unless you buy right. Right. And when I say buy right, meaning that you bought in at, at trying to get in the lowest price because the lower the price, the more ammo you have in your back pocket. Even though you might have gotten in at a higher interest rate, that is a temporary thing. Because as we just talked about, it's cyclical. And let's just say, just just for, I'm going to give some numbers just to give an example. Because these are real numbers for a property in North Carolina. Purchase price in in the in the heart of the high interest rate environment right now, a lot of purchase prices on, on homes in this area are like 350 yeah. you know, $325. But a couple years ago, like 2018, 2019, those homes were in the 550s. And... Because, and the reason the prices have been decreased on homes and what they call comps, which I know you're probably familiar with, with, with the work that your, your wife does. Now you're looking at a scenario where, okay, the houses are not selling at the price they were selling when interest rates were low. However, what they're selling at right now is the only price that they can sell it because the, the buyer's ability to afford it is controlling your ability ability to sell. That's why it's called a buyer's market. Because you could say, oh no, these houses were selling for 100000 a couple years ago. I want to sell for 500000 The number of people that can afford 500000 at the current interest rate is completely different and a lot lower than the number of people who could afford 500000 at 3 or 4% a couple years ago versus a $500,000 loan right now at 6.5%. The mortgage payments look completely differently. And what drives home sales in the market is affordability. If mm-hmm. buyers cannot afford the home, your home will not sell. And the only way to sell your home is to lower the price so that they can be approved for the mortgage that could then buy your home. So that's why it's a buyer's market, because the higher interest rates are putting the control in the buyer's hand to say, whatever the buyers can get approved for, for that's what I got to sell my home for. Mm-hmm. and and then, but here's where it pans out over time. I say, all right, let's just say I bought the home for for three hundred thousand at a higher interest rate. Let's just say two years down the line, I've made two years worth of payments. Let's just say that now my mortgage is down to two ninety. I'm just using hypothetical scenario because a lot of that money was interest, but I reduced the principal that I owe about ten thousand in that time period. That I owe two. 290 on my mortgage, but let's just say two years from now, the mortgage interest rate back down to three and a half, four percent that I could go refinance my home as if its price or its value was 500,000 back to where it was before the cycle played out. And now I say, all right, my home is worth 500,000 based on how interest rates have affected the pricing in the market. And usually a bank will allow you to borrow anywhere from 75 to 80 percent of the home value in a refinance or any kind of line of credit so yep. let's use 80 percent to keep it easy if a five hundred thousand dollar home price means that i can refinance my mortgage or pull out money up to a four hundred 
dollar amount. That's four hundred thousand is eighty percent of five hundred thousand. Remember, if I were to refinance or get a line of credit based on the four hundred thousand dollar mark, I owe two ninety. Right. So I could refinance at four hundred thousand and pays pay off the pay off the two ninety. Now I got a hundred and ten in cash and I can con just to continue to pay whatever the mortgage I was paying because it's likely that the mortgage on 400000 a lower interest rate, is going to be very comparable to your mortgage payment when you had a $300,000 purchase on a higher interest rate. And you and would so have paid off two ninety of it. And this is what's called a cash-out refinance that works in your favor because you bought at a, at a cheaper price when interest rates were high. That's a, the back-end benefit of this quote-unquote buyer's market because it gives you more financial flexibility in the future when prices go back up and you have more wiggle room to borrow the, the equity that you've built up in your home. Yo, that that, that is a thousand percent. One, one, I got one last question before we get out of here, but one thing I want to yeah. say is that just for if you are listening in the triangle, this market, even though interest rates are up, the, the 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 demand for the supply of homes is still higher. Even though, like what's crazy about the triangle market is that when when rates were low, the mm -hmm. norm was that you put a house on the market for X price, you would expect to get at least 30 plus thousand over asking. And we're talking even in, if you're putting in it for 250, you're you're expecting 280, right? Okay. Today, because of how crazy the over asking was, now you just expect to get what you asked for, if not a little bit over. Like if you're if you're putting your house on like that, that's how it it, it bottomed out because of the the demand mm -hmm. for the supply of homes here. Still a lot mm -hmm. of people moving, still a lot going on. And and like to your point, if you've been able to get in and own, the value of what you own is only gonna increase. My last right. question before we get out of here is given all this conversation around interest rates. We know they've been going up. Got another announcement here soon. When do you anticipate that the rates will go down? So throughout the spring and into this early summer, one of the things that became a prevalent message on the back half of this year, which we are currently in, that there will probably be either one or two more interest rate increases, which is definitely uh, increasing at a slower rate because the earlier part of this year, they were increasing them almost every month by 25 or 50 basis points earlier this year. So that would be a significant slowdown to the increase of them. And what their plan is, and willfully sticking to the plan, that interest rates would start to decrease in 2024. So you have more months where they might go up a couple more basis points than this year. And in 2024 is a year where they would start to one, pause the increases indefinitely, and then begin to reduce what is called the Fed rate, which is the interest rate that the Federal Reserve sets, and start that process in 2024 and continue the reduction in 2025, because it will be just as it's been a gradual increase. that has been a pretty quick, but gradual step, almost like it looks like a stepping stone uh, as far as the process of interest rates have been increased. They're also going to be decreased uh, gradually. So there's, there's no kind of interest rate shock on the market from a quick decrease that could send things out of whack uh, as far as reducing rates too quickly. But here's the one thing that's going to happen, not just in the housing market, but just across the board financially, when you think about all the things that could 
an impact or affect you financially in your life is that when these interest rates, when they say officially, hey, there's no more increases in the future, this is this is the top, this is the peak from here on out, we're going to start to decrease. When they say that, not necessarily Ooh. when it starts to happen, when they say that, Stock market is gonna go crazy. Let's go. Your one can go crazy. Let's go. Because here's how, how business responds to that. When they hear that, and here's how investors and businesses respond to that. When they hear that, it's like, okay, money itself will not get any more expensive than it is right now. We can get back to borrowing, and and when business or people start to borrow more money what does that mean more stuff gets purchased and more money is then made and then companies that we've seen have a slowdown over the last year or so are going to get back to making money like they were pre-pandemic and the value of those businesses are going to increase because they're making more money mm-hmm. and that's where you see stock prices increase and obviously we already explained what will happen to the housing market once um, once interest rates start to go down then You'll be able to sell your home at higher prices in the future or refinance and have more equity pulled out. And all those things will start to happen just at the mere announcement (laughs) that they're going to start to decrease interest rates. Because usually the the price doesn't have to be built in or, or the interest rate changes don't have to happen for people to respond with the information that they need. So as an investor, you're always forward looking. If I know that things are going to be better in the future because they just declared it, I'm going to invest today based on yeah. what I see coming in the future. Yeah. So when they make that announcement, you'll start to see changes and you won't even have to see the interest rates actually decrease yet for the benefit to happen of them saying that their interest rates are going to decrease. Just knowing that, say, all right, well, what do I do right now to take advantage of that? To say slowly but surely, find assets, real estate, stocks, any any assets you can get your hands on and buy assets right now. That's, that's the best thing you could be doing right now. If you want to be wealthier in the future, right now, this time period, at least for the next to nine months, maybe weeks to months buy assets buy homes buy stock buy anything that you will hold its value over time because when interest rates come down all of those things will be worth more than what you paid for them mm, and that's mm. the, simple, the simple math the simple math now is the time to buy as you said like markets are manipulated by expectations expectations are often controlled by the federal reserve and how they how they how they adjust the interest rates. If you're trying to put yourself in position for maybe a short to mid term come up, if you have any extra dollars to put towards stock, especially on a larger scale to put towards real estate, these markets, I'm not going to say that they've leveled out completely, but we're, we're, we're almost there. Like now yeah. is the time to buy so that you can see what when the pendulum swings, you just want to make sure you're getting that momentum as much as possible when it goes back the other way. So now I exactly. like that is the takeaway from today's episode. Now is the time to buy. If you're thinking about what to do, when to do it, don't wait. Any last words, Rob, before we wrap out, wrap up? I think, you know, one of the things that I always employ people to learn is you do it in small chunks, big chunks. Always you know, push yourself to learn more about money because one 
the things I often hear being in the financial world and the financial spaces, uh, there, there's this buzzword that a lot of us are using these days, creating generational wealth and you know, just putting our, ourselves in a position to be finally free. I get it. I understand it. I think we all have some kind of desire on that level. But the way to get there is not just from action. Action is very important, but it's also about making sure you're educated about how these things work. What is inflation? What is interest? How do different the value of assets, how are, are they affected by those different things? And once you start to understand those things on a basic level, you'll start to realize that, hey, I actually do have a good understanding of how these things work. I just understand terminology. And once you get clear on that space, you have then the foundation to put yourself in a better financial position. Not because somebody told you to buy this stock or told you to do this, but because you have an understanding. And I think this is the best time, in my opinion, in the last decade or so, to get knowledgeable and, and take action because you'll be buying in to some of the cheaper prices of assets that you'll see for the next decade or so. Man, oh man. If you didn't hear it, run it back, hear it again. This is a G podcast. Now is the time. That pendulum's going to swing. Put yourself in position to take advantage of that momentum. If you haven't heard already, this is Rob Boyd, the best re-educator out there. The episode is out right now. Make sure you check that out on the page. This is the G Podcast, where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and everything else. This is the G podcast make sure you buy now and subscribe to the page we are out we are out ha